0: It's time for Lawyers for Jesus, a show about the dynamic and exciting interaction of faith and the law, featuring the attorneys from the law firm Malkin Baker in downtown Chicago. Malkin Baker is nationally known for defending freedom and for serving the people of faith. And now, Lawyers for Jesus. Hello, welcome to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney and partner at the law firm of Malkin Baker in Chicago. We are Christian attorneys who focus on serving the body of Christ with its legal needs. To learn more about us, go to MountBaker.com. That's M A U C K B A K E R.com or call 312 726 1243. More than 90% of churches have fewer than 200 members. Is this a worrisome statistic or does God have a specific role for the smaller church? Today, I will be speaking with Carl Vaders, the author of Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation Under 250. Carl's book debunks some of the myths about small churches while encouraging pastors of small congregations to lead effectively. Being a small church pastor for over 30 years, Carl has lots to share with others who might be insecure about the size of their congregation. Carl, welcome to our show.
1: Thank you, Wood. It's great to be with you.
0: How did your passion for small churches uh, begin?
1: Well, I guess the short answer is I tried to build a big church and couldn't. I might as, might as well make that confession right up front, because every once in a while I notice somebody going, "Oh, what's wrong with you? You just couldn't build a big church." Yep, I admit that up front. Oh, um, yeah, I've, I've pastored in California all my life. Uh, the last twenty-six years now, I've been in Orange County, California, uh, which is, you know, a very, very populated area, and we've got some of the most well-known large churches in the world around us. We're You know, just a few miles from Saddleback Church, from the original vineyard, the original Calvary Chapel, Crystal Cathedral, you know, all those kinds of things. This is a place not just where big churches are built, but where big movements begin. And uh, I came here 26 years ago to a very small, dying, and um, discouraged church, and the Lord helped us to have some growth. We took it from a couple dozen people to you know, uh, over 100 people in the first six or seven years, and then almost 200 at about year 15 or so. Um, But we were never able to really push past that. And when we did for a short season push larger, it really was one of the most discouraging and frustrating seasons of my life. So we looked around and realized, you know what? Right now, at least we're a small church, so let's figure out how to do small church well. And that was when I started researching how to do small church well.
0: Okay, so I guess that answers the next question I had for you. Why did you write Small Church
1: Essentials? Yeah, Actually, um, I originally wrote a book that's still self-published called The Grasshopper Myth, which was kind of—I wrote it at first just to kind of get all of these frustrations and feelings off of my chest about how it is frustrating at times to be told that your small church isn't of value and so on— And then as that book took off and as I started writing and blogging about it, I started getting invitations to speak to other small church pastors. So Small Church Essentials actually came out of the last four or five years of spending time talking with and to what became eventually thousands of other small church pastors and hearing how much we had in common Uh, how many of our frustrations were similar, how many of the blessings of the small church were similar, and how we, as we found tools that could help each other, we were able to share them. So that's really, that's why I I dared to even put the word essentials in the title was because they really have been, as the subtitle says, field-tested among uh, hundreds, potentially even thousands of small churches around the country and around the world.
0: Okay, well, I I can see where, for example, in a a place in uh... Uh, rural North Dakota uh, there wouldn't really be an opportunity for building a, a mega church a huge church uh, just because the population is is slim and so there's also the but in, a, in an area like Orange County where the population is relatively dense it's possible uh, but uh, what you did was build something else and what did you build?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and that is one of the things that sometimes happens is, like like you just said, yeah, if you're in a small town, you can't build a big church, but I mean, I live in Orange County, California. There are millions of people around here, so you know, that, that was the question for us is, first of all, why can't we build it big? Does that mean there's something wrong with us? And once we answered that question of, no, there doesn't appear to be anything wrong with us. We have a healthy, strong, dynamic, forward-looking church here. So what we had to look at was to say, okay, If it's staying small, then what value is there in small? And especially in a large area like ours, what we discovered is one of the great values of being a small church is in heavily populated areas, people actually tend to be lonelier, um, and they're looking for connection. So for some people, that connection is they go to a big church on Sunday, and then they're a part of a small group during the week, and they get their teaching and worship on Sunday, and they get their connection during the week in their small group. And for a lot of people that works just great. So uh, that's wonderful. But for other people, they want that sense of fellowship and closeness and intimacy on Sunday morning as well as a part of their worship and teaching experience too. So small churches can provide that even in big cities where people often come in on a Sunday morning with a feeling of loneliness and really need to make connections.
0: Okay. You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of the law firm of Malkin Baker. If you missed part of this episode or want to hear other Lawyers for Jesus interviews, visit malkbaker.com. You can also subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter and follow us on Facebook and Twitter for legal updates with a biblical perspective. Today we have been speaking with Carl Vaders, author of Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation Under 250. Now, uh, I guess the the question really uh, comes down to uh, what is the purpose of having a church congregation at all, and therefore, can you do them as a church of fifty or two hundred versus a, a church of twenty
1: thousand? The, well, the purpose of the church is really described in many places in the New Testament and as part of my research into understanding the value of small churches, I did some several, you know, new read-throughs of the New Testament looking for areas where, is there anything in the New Testament that is commanded of the church that cannot be done unless you have a certain size? And the truth of the matter is there's not a single command to the New Testament church that cannot be done by two or three people who love Jesus, who love each other, and who gather together on a regular basis. It simply doesn't require a big crowd. It doesn't require paid clergy. It doesn't require a building. It doesn't require a bigger budget. Um, Anything that is commanded of of the New Testament church can be done by a small group. It can also be done by a massive group. I love big churches as well, but what we've done often in America especially is we've made the big church the norm. We've made the story of the Church exploding and doubling overnight or tripling overnight, we've we've celebrated that story as we should, but then we've gone beyond celebrating it to the point where we've made it like it's normative. And if your Church hasn't done that, then there must be something wrong. You must be broken in some way. But the fact of the matter is there's not a single thing that the Church is commanded to do that cannot be done by a small group just as easily as by a large group.
0: And, and I would note, by the way, that although a lot of the— uh... New Testament churches the Acts 2 church particularly had explosive growth if we look over what actually happened during that period most of the churches were probably very small met in homes had unpaid clergy and uh, and yet they are really our our biblical model for what a church is supposed to be
1: Yeah very much so and even the even the Jerusalem church we had which had massive growth on the day of Pentecost and shortly thereafter, the Bible says that they met from house to house. So n- n- dividing into very small groups for their main church service was how it was done in the beginning. Uh, and that's simply because they obviously didn't have buildings. Buildings came along later. And I'm not one of those people that thinks that you know the church was ruined the moment we gathered in independent buildings. Uh, you know, we have our own building that we need in as well. But i I think it's been large and small since the very beginning. But it's only been recently where you've concentrated on the large and kind of looked past the small. And it's time to bring back both, I think.
0: Okay. What are some myths uh, that that people believe and or pastors believe about small churches?
1: Oh, so many. Let me just go over a couple of them. The first one is probably that if the church is small, and particularly if the church is staying at a certain size, that it's broken or stuck. Um it is interesting, even just the language that we use when they go through statistics about uh, the sizes of churches and about the growth of churches. Um, there was a recent report, a really good one done by Lifeway, in which approximately a third of the churches were increasing in size, approximately a third were decreasing in size, and approximately a third were holding steady. But the way they phrased it wasn't that there are as many churches that are increasing as churches that are decreasing. The way they phrase it was two thirds. Third of churches are stuck or declining. Well, <laughs> my question is why? Why is it that if one third of the churches are holding steady in their numbers, why is that called stuck instead of holding steady? <laughs> it, yeah, it, yeah it's good just, question. It's, it's it's just in the language that we use. Um, and of course, there's a whole bunch more that we need to understand about those churches that are holding steady to determine they might be holding steady in a in towns that are decreasing in population, they might be holding steady uh, after having a big church move in next door and taking half of their congregation over there, but um, that they've been able to pull another half in. They might be holding steady in a retirement community where they're literally burying 25% to 30% of their congregation every year, and that means if they're holding steady, that's equivalent to 25 to 30% growth. So um, th- that's a myth. That, that the fact that we're holding steady or even potentially declining in numbers means we're sick. There are all kinds of other things.
0: Coming up, we'll talk further with Carl Vaders, author of Small Church Essentials, about how small church leaders can maximize their congregation's potential. I'm Whit Brisky, and this is Lawyers for Jesus.
1: Malcolm Baker is nationally known for representing churches and religious institutions and is providing you with a free resource to help your church stay protected under the law. This church legal checklist is designed to help your church identify and assess general risks under Illinois law and is revised yearly to keep your church up to date. Go to malkbaker.com slash church to download your free copy of this easy to fill out 21 section resource that your church can review at monthly board meetings.
0: Welcome back to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky, an attorney at Malkin Baker, a law firm based in Chicago, which serves churches, ministries, businesses, and individuals in their legal needs. If you missed the first part of this show and want to listen online, go to malkbaker.com forward slash radio. Today, we've been speaking with Carl Vaders, author of Small Church Essentials, Field-Tested Principles for Leading a Healthy Congregation Under 250. And, Carl, uh, you were going to give me a second myth regarding uh, small churches.
1: Uh, yeah, sure. The, the first myth, of course, was that somehow if, if we're not getting bigger, we're stuck, we're broken, or we're doing something wrong. That's the first one. And the second myth is that if, if we are okay with being small and if we're working within a small environment, that somehow we just don't care about the Great Commission. Um, every once in a while, I'll hear something written, hear something said, or read something written by my church group friends that will say, "You know, it's okay if your church stays small, but I want to reach my community for Jesus, so I'm going to try to get big." And I just it bristles me because I don't know of a small church pastor who doesn't want exactly the same thing. But what we what we're beginning to understand is that for some people, and for some ministries and churches, getting bigger is one of the primary ways that they fulfill the great commission for other churches, having a healthy, small church is the best way that they can contribute to the great commission. So the fact that the church is staying the same size, or even that the pastor is saying, you know what, this is my best place to minister. Doesn't mean we don't care about reaching lost people for Jesus. It simply means we've discovered the venue in which our gifts work the best to do that.
0: Well, and, and uh, I've, I've, often said, it doesn't matter if when your church goes out to uh, reach the community and evangelize, it's, it doesn't hurt the kingdom if the people that now come to Christ join a different church instead of your church. The kingdom is still being built, right?
1: Yes, exactly. In fact, there are a lot of small churches that are feeder churches. Um, I was recently at a large conference in Atlanta. There were over 8,000 people in the room, which is by far the biggest crowd of people I've ever stood in front of in my life. And before I was introduced to speak, the the person who was overseeing the conference asked, I want you to stand if you received uh, most of your training for ministry in a small church. And in that room of 8,000, over half of the room stood up. So most of the people in that room were coming from larger churches. Or we're working at larger churches now, but over half of them had received the bulk of their ministerial training in small environments, and many of them had been saved in small environments. So every size has its role to play, and we've got to understand that and value it.
0: That's good. Now you mentioned that uh, there are a lot of people, especially in in uh, areas that have more dense population, who might like a smaller. Uh, church environment, a more intimate church environment, on Sunday for worship, and uh, where you get to know, where you know everybody on a first-name basis in the congregation, I suppose. Um, Are there other particular advantages uh, that you want to talk about for small churches?
1: Yeah, there are several. I I think the first one that comes to mind is There are what I would call big church skills and small church skills. For instance, not long ago, I spoke at a conference uh, in a really large church in a very large metropolitan area. And in the previous year, they had gone through a massive renovation. It was long overdue and, and well done. They redid their entire color scheme. They redid their church logo to match it all up. It was done by a design firm. It cost them you know, ten, uh, tens of thousands, probably over $100,000 to do them It's really, really, really well done. Um, now, if you are someone who, uh, you know, decorates your house nicely and wants to help out at the church, you're not going to have a role to fulfill in that kind of a redesign in that kind of big, big church, because it's not appropriate to have someone who decorates their house nicely oversee the redesign of a church that feeds thousands of people. It just doesn't fit the context. But that person who decorates their house nicely might be part of a team that four or five times a year in their small church is able to pull out just the right thing for the season, toss what doesn't work from last year because it's broken, buy something new and refresh it. And in that small church, they have something to really contribute to keeping that church fresh-looking and nice and appropriate for the season, and that, that particular gift wouldn't be usable in a bigger church context. So the same thing with musicians. If you play a little bit of guitar, you can lead and worship at a small church, but you're probably not going to get on the team at a big church, and you shouldn't. It it isn't appropriate for that context either. So everybody's got their gifts. Everybody's got their role to play. And there are some gifts that are simply more appropriate in a small church and more usable in a small church than in a large church context. And the small church makes that available for people.
0: You know, it's interesting you bring up uh, the spiritual gifts, I was thinking as we were talking earlier that there are certain gifts that the small church as a group have and, uh, and large churches uh, have, and they're, they're different. And we have to look at the, the body of Christ needs, needs
1: both. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely about both and and not one or the other. There's been too much one or the other talk in recent years. It's time for a whole bunch of both and. I think the body of Christ is better off when we do that.
0: You're listening to Lawyers for Jesus. I'm Whit Brisky of Malkin Baker, and we're talking to Carl Vaders, author of Small Church Essentials. Uh, Carl, uh, what advice do you have to give to, uh, to pastors and leaders in small churches? Both what to do and what not to do,
1: I suppose. Well, first one is don't be discouraged if your numbers are not getting bigger. Um, too much of church growth teaching uh, while it's good and correct. And they usually are teaching us the right principles. They, they're carried with this sense of inevitability. That is, if you do this, it's inevitable that your church will get bigger. But what I've discovered is there are a whole bunch of churches out there doing healthy, good, positive ministry that do not receive the numerical growth. So do not assume that your lack of numerical growth means that your church is unhealthy. So that's the first piece of advice I'd give for small church pastors is don't get discouraged. Uh, Lack of numbers doesn't mean that you're not doing well. Secondly, talk to other small church pastors, spend time with them. Yes, we can learn from big church pastors. I still go to big church conferences and read their books and I gain some things from them, but there's a limited amount that I can learn in my context from a big church. It's kind of like, uh, a local coffee shop, Coffee shop. there's only so much a local coffee shop can learn uh, from the local Ikea store, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some principles that carry over, but not a whole lot. I'm going to learn more by going to other local coffee shops and seeing how they do it. So small church pastors uh, need to share principles with each other and need to encourage one another. So I think those are the two things. Don't become discouraged and spend time with other small church pastors to learn how to do good small church ministry.
0: Uh, is, is good governance, uh, solid governance, uh, just as important in a small church as in a large church uh, in the Chicago area? Uh, we've had some recent events where uh, megachurches have really suffered because of uh, poor governance and poor supervision, um, but is this also important for, for small churches?
1: Very much so. Although in a small church, it's going to be done in a different way. Um, it's going to be based more on relationships than on systems and methods. So there there are great systems and methods that need to be observed. Simple things like no one should be alone with the offering. Um, uh, no one should be collecting it alone. No, no one should be counting it alone, just so that not only will you be honest, but you've got uh, an accountability that says, yes, they were honest. So that if somebody says, I put a $50 bill in and I didn't get a receipt and there's no 50 in there, you know, they can say, no, I was there with them the whole time. So there are simple things like that. I, you know, Having an independent set of eyes, look at the books, that's always good. Making sure that no single person in the church is the final authority. The pastor should have a, a board of elders that is overseeing them, and then uh, each individual and then board of elders, as a member of the church, has the pastor overseeing them. So there are those kinds of things that need to be done in every church. But in a smaller church, it's going to be done less by uh, observing the constitution and bylaws and more by living out relationally with each other and making sure that those bases are covered.
0: Well, I would uh, I disagree with you a little bit there. That I think uh, living with the bylaws, having a good set of bylaws can really be helpful uh, if the relationships get broken and you have to. End oh yeah. Oh, the,
1: no, there's no, there's no disagreement. That might've been a misstatement on my part. I, what, what I'm saying is anytime somebody is constantly going to the constitution and bylaws, then you have usually got a breakdown of relationships and that's not good. But like you just said, the constitution, constitution and bylaws need to be strong, need to be solid, need to be well written. But most of what we do to hold each other accountable is going to happen in relationships. It's typically when the relationships break down that the Constitution and bylaws is there to help get us back on track again.
0: Carl, thank you for speaking with us today. How can people get a hold of your book and learn more about leading a small church?
1: Well, I run a website called newsmallchurch.com, so you can find me there. I blog three times a week at Christianity Today. My blog there is called Pivot. And I'm also can be found on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.
0: Thank you. If you have a legal need or question and want the perspective of a local Christian attorney, contact us at Malkin Baker. You can reach us at 312-726-1243 or at malkbaker.com. That's M-A-U-C-K-B-A-K-E-R dot com. Visit our website and subscribe to our Religious Liberty newsletter with legal updates, or call us and mention Lawyers for Jesus for a free consultation. Thanks for listening. I'm Whit Brisky, attorney at Malkin Baker. This is Lawyers for Jesus. Gonna have to save somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to some somebody.